Hi, everybody. Stuart Gandalf here with ARIA Agency and Healthcare Success. I'm pleased to be doing another podcast and very excited today to be working with my colleague, Lynn Nye, who's moderating our discussion today. Mia Nice, who is Head of Healthcare and Life Science Partnerships at Aravel. We're going to be doing a panel together at this year's I for Pharma conference in Philadelphia. Lynn, take it away. Mia, would you just give a synopsis of your company? Aravel originates from the Institute for Systems Biology, which is Dr. Leroy Hood's institute out of Seattle. And Dr. Lee Hood is known, probably best known as being sort of the father of uh, systems biology, systems medicine. Um, you know, he's, his team at Caltech invented the first automated gene sequencer, and um, you know he's a scientific co-founder of Amgen, Applied Biosciences, Rosetta, and sort of many other. Um, he's now 80 years old and still very active and engaged. He's, he serves as the chief scientific officer for the Providence St. Joseph Health Network, which is wow. the third largest not-for-profit in the country. Um, yep. And about three years ago, he decided that timing was right to uh, do a a study on healthy individuals to see whether deep phenotyping and genotyping uh, matched with uh, coaching behavior change could help people optimize their wellness and avoid disease. So uh, so they, the, the Institute did a study, and from that study, Aravel was born. And Aravel is essentially now a three-year-old company that has two key assets. One is this wellness program that came out of the Institute, which is sort of deep scientific, genetic, uh, big data type thing with personal coaches. Uh, so that's very much a wellness offering, although, frankly, two-thirds of people that come into to Aravel are not well. Um, they have usually some kind of issues, which is what drives them our way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's asset number one, and we've been running that program for three and a half years and have had tremendous clinical Success. Um, we're superior to what you see in in practice. Certainly, far more engagement than you would see in your regular sort of corporate annual physical. So that's sort of asset number one. If you go to Aravel's website, that's that's what you will see. And then the okay. second asset that we have is the data itself. We have a very high consent rate. People people uh, have their de-identified data consented and used for research. Um, 94% of people consent to have their data used for research. So when you think about the kind of data that we're collecting, we're collecting genetics. We're also collecting clinical labs over a period of time. We've got a six-month blood draw. We've got microbiome every six months. We've got salivary cortisol every six months, Fitbit devices, scales and sleep devices synchronizing every night, and then a ton of coach notes. So we really develop a very deep view of an individual as well as we collect a tremendous amount of longitudinal data. And people stay in the program because they build this relationship with their coach. Anyway, so um, what we do on kind of asset number two, which is not as visible on the web, but um, Genome Web just wrote about us last week. And that's where we take the data set to market. Um, We've partnered with biopharmaceutical companies, consumer goods companies, academic researchers, um, who are using this de-identified multi-omic data set um, to further scientific research in you know a whole number of disease areas, and they're also using it on the provider side uh, to conduct observational trials in certain disease states because we we're a nice, neat, ready-made set platform um, that they can simply uh, you know co- plug into, and so we have trials going on in Alzheimer's disease and IBD and breast cancer and wellness and all sorts of stuff. So. So that's sort of Aravel, the two assets, the 
kind of consumer asset as well as the back end, the data. Um, and, you know, we're learning as we go, and we're uh, the, the consumer side has got some really good engagement metrics. Um, where we've struggled a little bit is to try and find the right sort of price point and time commitment that would appeal to a consumer um, who's trying to solve a pain point. And then on the research side, we're, we've definitely got several pilot projects going on and a lot of interest in actually licensing the whole data set. So commercially, we've been pretty... Pretty good, yeah. And we're in the process of talking big-scale partnerships with a number of um, fairly well-known players, uh, which sure. should be announced by end of Q2. This morning, my wife bought me this 23andMe kit for Christmas, and I finally got around to the whole saliva thing. I went through the sign-up process, and it said, do you want to know if you have a ge genetic predisposition for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's? And I thought, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, unless there's something you can do about it, right? But it's genetics, and so what can you do right? And is there something you can do to prevent it? So it's kind of funny and topical that that happened this morning. Yeah, yeah. you know, there's more and more interest, right? There's more and more, and I think 23andMe and some of Ancestry, and they're driving an interest in consumer genetics. Um, but you're right, there's limited actionability, which is why we focus on the stuff that is actionable. Like, so when you speak to your coach, They'll talk to you much about much more about the polygenic risk for diabetes or polygenic risk for obesity and whatnot, and those are things that you can, you know, make a difference in. And we have partnerships too with like some of the big IDNs. So we have a partnership with Spectrum, yeah, um, okay, where yeah. they offer Aravel through their Strive Clinic. So. Well, I was just yeah, it, make, it totally makes sense because if you're doing it through an employer, you've got access to lots of consumers really quickly, mm -hmm. right? And like it makes yep. it scales well. Versus one at a time sales, which on a, it's harder to sell, and then there's also like you know cardiologists and internal medicine and things like that, which would be really interesting if they saw that fits with what they're doing. I wanted to ask you how you felt about a few things. So you know what the topic is: patient-centric care. Does the doctor know best? So my question to you is: Does what does the doctor know best, and what are some of the things that you think the doctors don't? Know? I think what we're seeing in the market, right, is a trend to move upstream. Right, because our, our current medical system, our healthcare system, it's not really a healthcare system. It's more of a sick care system, right? And so, aside from people that partake in annual physicals, and even those, you have sort of very limited access to the physician themselves and very limited follow-up, right? Um, you tend to only see your doctor when something is wrong, right, when you're symptomatic. And so to me, you know, what we're seeing is kind of an emergence of offerings, market offerings, that lean into what I would call the personalized wellness space, where personalized to you based on your genetics and a un unique omics. Um, preventative, right, where it's much more focused on preventative uh, preventative treatments as opposed to diagnose, prescribe, right? Um, and participatory, right? You know, as we're moving towards consumerization, um, the, the trend is for the individual to really own their health journey. And so I think that's why you're seeing, you know, Viome bought Habit last week, and that's, that's a classic play in that sort of uh, personalized participatory predictive um, space, right? So to me, the physician, the, much of the physician community continues to operate in kind of a landscape where the incentives are a little perverse, right? Where it's still all about billable codes. 
um, and there's little incentive to kind of keep patients healthy um, up, up front. Um, and so you're seeing these companies emerge that are more incented to do so. Do you think that doctors, do they know about that? What's their level of understanding? So I, I can speak from experience because we speak to a lot of physicians, right? I have a sales rep that's just dedicated to this channel, and she's a PharmD. She spends all her time speaking to physicians. Three buckets. The I don't care about this hocus-pocus genetic stuff. Go away. I want to keep doing what I've been doing forever. Um, the second bucket is, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting I'm not necessarily opposed to it, but I wouldn't necessarily make any decisions based on it. And if you show me your data, that's fine, but I'm, you know, whatever. And then you've got the third bucket, and I would say they split roughly a third, a third, a third. The third bucket is the very um, engaged physicians who do believe in personalized participatory preventative health and are loving the idea of using genetics and genetic predispositions to tailor rec clinical recommendations. Um, you see this, for example, in the Strive Clinic, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, so we're seeing kind of a, a mix, and, and it doesn't necessarily map to a particular demographic, although I would say that the more engaged, in, in, interested parties uh, tend to skew younger. Is it in any uh, a particular specialty, you know, like cardiology or diabetes or... Or primary care, or I mean, where's, where's it tends the to be primary care? Yeah, it's primary oh, care, and in particular, concierge, right? Mm. So the concierge community is more and more interested in this kind of approach. And then, as we are getting more and more data coming through with respect to uh, clinical outcomes, preventative clinical outcomes. Um, we are starting to see interest from oncology, tremendous interest, funny enough, from uh, neuroscience, in particular geriatricians. So we have a cohort of people on a clinical trial right now with the Hogue Hospital who have been diagnosed with early cognitive decline, and they're going through this program of sort of lifestyle and behavior change with absolutely tremendous results. Are these buckets like equal buckets, or is the engaged bucket a smaller bucket of people? No, I'd say it's roughly equal. They tend to be part of organizations that are already thinking quite progressively, where there's a very clear top-down message. Um, so Rod Hoffman, right, the CEO of Providence, is very vocal about it being a strategic agenda to keep customers, and that's how he calls his staff caregivers and his patients are not patients, they're customers, um, you know, an experience that is about keeping you healthy as well as treating you when you need it but, you know, very much resourcing around keeping people healthy. So I think where we have really strong leadership messages coming from the top down, you see more of that sort of engaged physician. And then, interestingly, Washington State University has actually just put their first cohort of med students through a program like this. And, you know, traditionally mm. physicians get very, very little education around diet and exercise and such, right? Very, very small nutritional component as part of their entire um, educational process. Well, Washington State is, is, is changing that, and they've actually put their first cohort of 60 med students through, you know, one of these programs. I'm not surprised at all, number one, that, like, the sick patients are the ones that are most interested, or the younger patients tend to be interested. I would expect also mm -hmm. there's probably a financial, the more educated upper scale are probably more interested. The, of course. Uh, 
that cohort about the doctors being split into thirds, that's exactly what I see when we're working with them to market their business. You know, like one third thinks it should be legal, one third is in the middle, mm-hmm. swayable, and maybe in our case, 10 to 20 percent are, you know, a little bit more visionary. So, and I bet you mm-hmm. you would see that as well. The idea of um, some of these partnerships, like you mentioned a minute ago for Hope, like, are you finding mm-hmm. that doctors, uh, the ones that are embracing this, uh, it seems like it would have, like, uh, tremendous potential. Like, they must be really excited about this, right? I mean, the ones that are in that third, are they, do you find they tend to be more patient-centric in general? Yes, for sure. They tend to be more patient-centric, but they also, some in, in many cases, are struggling to ha- to find solutions for patients because there is sort of a, a huge unmet medical need, right, in that there is no cure for disease XYZ, like IBD, right, is a classic example, Crohn's colitis, right? So, so this whole metabolic autoimmune space where it's really about trying to keep the patient comfortable and keeping them kind of adjusting their lifestyle because there's no pill they can prescribe. And it's a very similar situation in in Alzheimer's, right? Um, So we find the physicians are more motivated there because the pharmaceutical industry has not given them answers yet, right? There's a lot of research going on. There's tremendous research and some incredibly smart minds. But, you know, Alzheimer's is an extremely complex disease. And so in the meantime, um, physicians are utilizing programs like this to see whether they can sort of bend the curve, certainly slow down deterioration, um, and and help these patients at least with quality of life, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to straight up cure. And Lynn, one of the questions yeah. you're going to ask about is the as it relates to pharma. Going back to the panel questions, uh, do you believe there's a communication gap between doctors and patients, and why? It depends. Right. And I mean, it depends on what therapeutic area, what disease state. I mean, if you're talking primary care, um, yeah, for sure. Because, see, the, the biggest challenge with, for example, just you look at the annual physical, right, the the sort of the, the hallmark of preventative health, right? You go there, reality is you get a workup. If you've got good, good insurance, blah, 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 you spend a couple of hours, right? But we all know, like, we know what we need to do, you know, eat right, exercise, right, lose weight. We all know the basics. But behavior change is really hard. And so the physician is focused on kind of getting a baseline reading and then, okay, I'll see you again next year. But the reality is a lot of times people need a partner in helping them change behavior, helping them modify the behavior so that when they turn up to their annual physical the year after, you know, the results will be positive. That's where the physician is not stepping in, right? They're not stepping in to help. And, and frankly, it's not just the physicians. The system as a whole is not stepping in to help. Um, unless you're diagnosed with something like type 2 diabetes, in which case you can get prescribed, you know, the OMADA platform or whatever. But if you're kind of just borderline um, and you have opportunities to improve your wellness but you're not necessarily diagnosed with anything, then you sort of, you're left until, okay, <laughs> sooner or later you'll have a symptom and at that point we'll care, you know. You mentioned earlier the reimbursement model is playing against it because they're not incentivized. Oh, totally. Because yeah. if they spend time on something they're not getting incentive for, that means they're not doing getting paid yeah. on something else. So from their standpoint, I could see why a salesperson talks to the doctors. It's like a way of doing the right thing without being a conflict of interest, right? If, you, if your coaches can supplement this, um, the patient is getting better care until they can figure out how to get paid, basically. 
In IBD, too, it's really interesting. We're doing a program yeah. right now with the American Gastroenterological Association. And the mm -hmm. goal of the program is to tell doctors how to talk with patients. <laughs> and when we're talking with these people, it's clear they do not know how to use the right kind of language to talk to their patients. Mm -hmm. so, it, it's, it, it's, very, it's very, very tricky, for sure. And I, I think here's, here's to the, um, the opportunity, with the market opportunity, right? is we're seeing a tremendous amount of consolidation, right, in the provider space. And so particularly as we get to the true integrated delivery networks like the Kaisers where they're both payer and provider, right, suddenly the incentives do change a little. And as we get more and more health economic data and as we are able to have a more fact-based conversation about return on investment of keeping people healthy versus treating them once, once they're symptomatic, you know, my hope is that equipped with that data, as well as story, right? Uh, we will be able to kind of influence the, if, if not so much the the reimbursement model, but kind of the the attitudes, um, you know, within the system. Yeah. So, do you think that improving communication? I think you're going to say yes to this. Will improve outcomes, or does improve outcomes? We've definitely seen in our program that relationship-based accountability, combined with a personalized approach yields one, superior clinical results, and two, far, far superior engagement over time. And so, right. you know, communication is one thing, but it's also, you know, having feel, feeling like that there's an actual relationship there between the patient or the consumer and, um, and the clinician. And whether that's a physician or an RN or a... PA or whatever, but that's kind of, I think, we, we people don't feel accountable to a bot, right, or an app, right, but they do feel accountable to a human being, and we, we've seen this tons and tons of times in our data. So do you have actual published data on that that you could point to? So, yes, I have two, two things. We've published in um, Nature Biotech uh, 2017. That was... That was the actual uh, P100 study that was done at the Institute for Systems Biology, and that one has all the data associated with it. Now, that was only 108 people, but they did have a health coach, and they did measure engagement and adherence and things like that. So, And that includes, obviously, the ongoing communication with the coach via phone or app or whatever. So that is peer-reviewed. It's published. It's done. And then also have just... Um, straight-up data that we pull based on surveying our uh, participant community, particularly our employers, our self-funded employers, uh, are interested in, you know, how the program is performing because it is a little bit more expensive than what they would usually pay for a wellness program. So for them, it's about justifying that it's worth it um, longer term from a comp and band standpoint. Let's change the topic a little bit. So. How can we help time-pressured doctors to be more effective? I mean, here we are saying what they should do, but what are we going to do to help them to be more effective? So tell us about what we can do with primary care. I think the incentives need to change. I think the incentives are keep, keeping people healthy and really using cutting-edge science. I mean, we have the science, right? We, we can do polygenic scoring. We can do polygenic risk evaluations. We know how to track people longitudinally over time. We have some tremendous research done in behavior change, but we haven't dot connected all the dots. And so to me, making, making the clinic more effective is about bringing cutting-edge science into the clinic 
um, preventatively and in a personalized way, and then helping individuals optimize their wellness and avoid disease over a period of time through, um, you know, through holding their hand through the change, right, through, through making m- m- behavior modification. Um, now, in order for that to, to really work in real time, I mean, we work in a for-profit health world. Um, we need to be looking at the incentives uh, to, to do so. And, and I think more health economics, more studies related to what, what's the impact of, of someone transitioning to disease and, and the cost, um, you know, are a good thing. It seems to me that nurses and PAs are a very important part of this. Would you agree? Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. RNs, dietitians, nutritionists, for sure, absolutely. They're a huge part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so I mean, it's an ecosystem thing. It's a multifaceted approach to, uh, to constructing an ecosystem of care. Are you guys getting much into population health or accountable care organizations? Because it seems like that would be the problem is, of course, paying for it. The consumer price here at $99 a month is not bad for an individual, but bad when you have thousands. But is that, it seems like if you're really serious about population health, applying this model... I think the people that need programs like Aravel the most are actually the people that can least afford them. And I personally am, I've been a huge proponent of actually securing funding from our industry partners to help onboard um, people from, you know, either certain populations or people from the accountable care world um, into a program like this so that we can study them um, better and so that we can generate data around that particular cohort. Um, we're not there yet. One thing I thought was really powerful, that people respond to people, not to machines, uh, not to like you know automated text, which we'd like to all, being a digital marketer, we'd love this automated stuff. But that totally resonates with me, that people would be, that human element is enormous, right? It's all the difference in the world. You know, for example, we talk about when we're asking for reputation management at a doctor's office for compliance, very, very low uh, compliance or very, very little response from a patient if you email them a request for a uh, review. If you text mm-hmm. them, it goes up a lot. Um, so, like mm-hmm. I joke that emailing them is worth a penny, texting them is worth a dime, asking them mm-hmm. personally is a dollar. <laughs> the compliance mm-hmm. skyrockets. So that's not what we want to hear, right, because the automation is cheaper. Um, but the reality is, and I'm guessing that maybe people would be triaging, you know, like with you guys, Mia, like, you know, it's like, okay, I'd love to give everybody, but I can't. But these patients over here are at the highest risk genetically or income-wise, and therefore we can pay you for this subset of my overall, I'm talking from, you know, Affordable Care Act sort of perspective of, mm-hmm. you know, these patients really need help, and we need to help them. You're right. Um, there is only a finite number of problems, particularly when you're just focused on wellness, when you're coaching to wellness as opposed to coaching to disease. And so over a three-and-a-half-year, four-year period now, we have seen definitely patterns. And we have optimized our coaching models such that it takes advantage of some of these patterns that you're talking about, which are kind of the high-need consumer, um, the demographic, that requires more interaction versus the demographic that is happy to interact on the app. Um, So, yeah, we're we're seeing patterns and we're definitely applying tools and strategies to leverage that. And and that's kind of where 
See, the, the human aspect is a challenge from a business model standpoint because it's expensive and it's tough to scale, right? Yeah. And so, and so, which is why I think, you know, some having some more health economics and ROI data to justify it is a good thing, but then also to looking at how we leverage um, new technologies to make the investment um, as optimized as, as it can possibly be. The current environment is all about scale and letting machines do it. And then you look at something like Weight Watchers where, I don't know, I know they're changing their model as we speak, but the idea of humans talking together, even though it's not like professional coaching, they still made gains when they, you know, have some accountability to a real person. And But it's like the, the climate today is all about scale and cutting people out of the equation, so it'll be interesting to see how that works. What you were talking about was from the consumer point of view, but... But where you started this conversation, Mia, was you said the positions fall into three buckets. You know, I don't care. Mm -hmm. It's all hocus pocus. I'm interested and not opposed, but I'm not going to hear anything about it. And I'm engaged. So then how do you move mm -hmm. the positions in the first two categories into the third category? I mean, what would we do that would be some kind of scalable strategy that would, that would move that? I think it's a classic technology adoption curve. Right, where you have the visionaries and the, and the early adopters and the mainstream and the laggards. And to mm -hmm. some extent, in marketing strategy, you ignore the laggards because yep. they're so expensive to convert, it doesn't make sense. You just take for granted that there's going to be laggards in any bell curve, and, you know, we ignore them. And frankly, I mean, it's probably not the most politically correct thing to say, but these tend to be physicians who are over 50, for over 55, who are not digital natives. They just don't get the technology, don't feel comfortable in it. They've not been trained in it. It's not their native world, and they've been doing things like they've been doing for 30-plus years. So, you know, some of, some of that issue is just they're going to gradually retire out of the system, right? So um, to me, it's you, you tackle it like you would tackle any, any technology adoption, um, you know, curve in that you rely well, on I the visionaries to convert. To build on that, Lynn, I worked with the, somebody in the anorexia field who actually had um, a program written up in the Lancet and um, the National Academy of Proceedings of Sciences or National, whatever, the National Proceedings Academy of Sciences. And their argument was that doctors don't change their mind, they just die or retire. <laughs> so I totally, <laughs> I, I totally well, agree see, with I what Mia just said that. based on my experience. Yeah, I don't believe that, though, because I think that, you know, where um, <laughs> where Mia was sort of going is, you know, it's classic in pharma that you use the opinion leaders to um, educate the prescribers, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, and you, you, um, you take the data. That's why the data is so important. Um, this, is actual, this is actual data, and so this is why you need to be doing this, right? Yeah. So here's the difference between what I would call the old power world and the new power, right? And I use this term based on Jeremy Hyman's um, uh, book, right? And the old power is the KOL. It's the paternalistic medicine authoritative God voice that comes down and says, this is the right thing to do and everyone else follows, right? Um, what we're seeing, I think, in kind of the world of new power is more of a kind of collective voice where the clinical results and the patients are so networked that um, the adoption is being driven a, a lot by that and less so by the sort of authoritative KOL. And, and that's particularly in primary care. And, and KOL is obviously still very, very uh, relevant in the specialty space. 
But in the primary care space, we're definitely seeing a lot of that sort of patient-centric conversation, right? Is your company involved with, like, with groups like A4M the, for integrative medicine? Because that's an area these doctors love this kind of stuff. Uh, is that is that um, anything that you, is that? I'm just curious because those doctors are all about wellness and health, and I just don't know if you see them much or not. You know, we see them. We definitely have conversations with them, um, and I like, sort of have one staff member that's sort of dedicated to this space. Um, we've had moderate success with them, right? It, it's I'm going to say moderate because we don't sort of white label our offering. It's almost like they sometimes see us as a little bit of a competitor, right, because we're in this sort of P4 medicine, personalized, predictive, participatory. Um, and so that's been our experience. And, of course, there's the cost, there's the out-of-pocket aspect that um, gives some people kind of heartburn. But, yeah, for sure, attitudinal alignment is absolutely there with the, um, the, integrative, the integrative practitioner, for sure. Some of them still are a little shy of genetics, though, and they actually don't like it because it sort of disrupts some of their stuff. They tend to prescribe a lot of vitamin B, and then we start talking about people who have a receptor that you shouldn't be consuming so much of it because you can't process toxins, and then suddenly they don't know what to do with that. My assessment is that Aravale is probably five years ahead of its market and that we're at this sort of gradually, 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 suddenly. And if you look at some of the other plays in the market, even like 23andMe when they started their health stuff, right, it was gradually, gradually, and then the, the hockey stick kind of went up. And I think we're going to see the same thing, particularly once we start publishing some of this financial data around ROI. And there's some studies going on in that space, which I think are going to be really interesting. And it looks very specifically at cost of claims costs, et cetera. Thanks, Lynn, for helping out with this podcast today. And thank you, Mia. That was really insightful. Take care. Thank you.